We've been talking about the relationship between the whole and its parts, and looking at it from the non-prasangika point of view. And uh, we're up to now looking at uh, the pervasion of the whole and its parts. We're looking specifically at uh, the uh, body and the parts of the body, and then in relation to that we'll uh, look at uh, the cognition of the self or a person in terms of uh, the visual cognition of uh, a body and its parts. And you recall that a body as a whole is an imputation on its parts and it is uh, self-sufficiently knowable. It means that you don't need to uh, see the parts first or some of the parts and then uh, the parts together with uh, the whole that when we see a part of a body, we're also seeing a body as a, uh, as a whole object. This, as we've seen, is the true aspectarian interpretation of cognition as uh, followed by the uh, Galupa tradition. So, in this case, the body as a whole and all of its parts are forms of physical phenomenon. Right? So the body of its whole yeah, so now the question becomes uh, really the uh, where are the individual defining characteristic marks of the body as a whole and uh, each of its parts. Because uh, as you recall, when we talk about the aggregate of uh, distinguishing, sometimes called recognition, but uh, Recognition is too advanced, really, for what this aggregate is talking about. Distinguishing is focusing on the defining characteristic mark of uh, an object and distinguishing it from everything that is not it. So, uh, not only abstractly from everything that is not what it is, but uh, in a sensory uh, field of cognition, then it distinguishes it from everything else in the that is all around it, otherwise we're not able to see a distinct object. So this distinguishing is very important and it focuses on an individual defining characteristic mark uh, of the object. And according to the, uh, well, in general, all the uh, traditions, including the Prasangaka, would say that the body as a whole and each of the parts that are its basis of imputation, each have their own individual uh, defining characteristic marks. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to distinguish an arm from a leg, and you wouldn't be able to uh, distinguish the body from the wall behind it when uh, you see the body. So they have their individual defining characteristic marks, and according to the non-prasangikas, the individual defining characteristic mark of the whole body as an imputation phenomenon is found in each of the parts that are its basis for imputation. That's where they would be located, because uh, from these uh, non-prasangu points of view, the individual defining characteristic mark is something which is findable on the side of uh, the object, and in uh, some way, either uh, by itself alone, as in the case of the Chittamatras, or by itself in conjunction with mental labeling in the case of uh, Svatantrikas, establishes the existence of the phenomenon as what it is. So uh, when we see um, an arm, the defining characteristic, you know, let's say when you um, see just part of a body, which is uh, what happens all the time, actually. We never see a whole body. We can only see with our vision the front part of the body, but we don't see the back part of the body, or we see the back and we don't see the front. Or if somebody is uh, walking by the window, we only see the top part, and we're on the ground floor, we only see the top part of their body. So we only see part of a body at uh, a time, but nevertheless, even in seeing the part, let's say an arm, we are seeing a body as a whole common sense uh, object. So how do you do that? I mean, how is that possible? It's possible because the defining characteristic mark of the body as a whole is found in each of its 
parts that are its basis for imputation. So it's somewhat like a, a DNA, you know, some sort of marker, a DNA marker that is found in uh, each part of the body that identifies it as uh, a part of that particular individual body. Do you follow that? I mean, that I think probably is uh, uh, acceptable to a uh, Western scientific point of view. Is it, uh, Mr. Science? Partly. Partly. <laughs> I'm just thinking that, yeah, yeah, at some level you can say that every cell contains the same DNA. Right. Assuming that it's marked the same, that it's being expressed the same, that as a different context, of course. Right, but if we speak just generally, we would say that yeah, that okay. each cell of the body basic, has the DNA. At basic level, yes, it's true. The information is in the information is there. Okay, so then the issue is really how much of one type of sensory data, or how many moments of subsequent non-conceptual sensory cognition, you know, after the initial moment of it, are needed before we can correctly know what it is. In other words, before we can, you know, you know, to know what it is, is a conceptual process. When we just distinguish something, we don't uh, know what it is. We haven't fitted into a category and uh, called it with a word that has meaning, or the category has a meaning to us. You know, worms don't have a category, a word associated with a category food, but they certainly know what it means. So. How much do we need to know in order to know what it is? In other words, you have an initial moment of uh, cognition, of seeing something, and then, in accordance with the uh, Sautrantika analysis of cognition, we have a sequence of subsequent cognition. So how much of that do we need to have before you get that very quick succession of indeterminate cognition, mental non-cognition, mental non-conceptual cognition, and then finally, conceptual cognition, in which you fit it into a category and probably give it a word, and the word has a meaning, and we know what it is, that it's a, a body of this particular person. It depends on your experience, though. It depends on your... And your on your age, and on your training, and... Right, it depends on the, uh, the training and the age, so it will differ with each person. You're but, a basic scientist, you may, right. one cell may be another, oh, this is an arm. <laughs> right, some cell you might know, yeah. but, but the question is how quickly, how much, and how do you know what it is? And uh, this, uh, so depending on our abilities as a person, looking at the sensory data, we may need to use this uh, type of valid cognition, which is called valid cognition, in which determination of its object needs to be induced by another cognition. In other words, uh, when we see something, let's say you see someone in the distance, you don't know who it is, but you correctly know that uh, they're going to have to come closer, I'm going to need more cognitions, in order to know who it is. So, so that's called either self-evident, it's self-evident at the first moment what something is, or it is uh, other-induced valid cognition, that it would be valid cognition that needs to be induced by further cognition. So we may need to uh, see a larger part of the body, you know, of, uh, of this part, or we may need to have a closer look, for instance, under a microscope. You know, when you just see, have a, a little piece of skin. You know, you know that to, be, to, be, to correctly identify which body it's part of, you need to look under a microscope. So that's a valid cognition, that you need further cognition. Or sequence its DNA. Or a see. Well, you might only see part of the DNA and not the whole DNA. I mean, there's, there's many levels, you know, in terms of what further, inf you know, cognition we need. But the point is that we will need further cognition, and that's how we would 
uh, reach the, you know, answer the question of how much further do we need to know, you know, of uh, uh, how, uh, you know, in order to be identified, in order to identify what something is. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, you think about this. This is, you know, um, I get a telephone call today, and the voice, you know, just starts talking to me. And I have no idea who it is. So this is just let them so, talk, no? Well, you could either let them talk and finally try to figure it out, yeah. or you could ask them, I need further information. Who is this? In order to identify it. Or when you meet somebody and you can't remember their name. You know, that also happens a lot of the time, at least when you're an older person, that happens. And you have to ask, or you, hopefully you're in another group of people and you wait until somebody else calls the person by their name. If you don't want to embarrass yourself by saying, you know, what's your name? <laughs> I've forgotten it. <laughs> So, this is uh, an important type of uh, valid cognition to recognize when we, uh, I mean, it's very important even in terms of not just identifying something, uh, what something is, but uh, our understanding of something, to know that our understanding is not really very precise and that to get a better understanding, we're going to have to either read more or ask more questions. Very important, actually, not to have the arrogance and pride of thinking, well, you know, I've understood it completely. So that uh, it's part of one of the vows, actually, not to put a limit on our understanding, uh, particularly avoidness. Not to put. Not to put a, you know, a boundary on that. But, you know, until we are a Buddha, we haven't, you know, fully gotten it all the time, you know, in the proper way. So, anyway, we have this, uh, this point. And uh, there's a uh, distinction which is made in this Vatantrika system, uh, which uh, can help us to uh, uh, answer, you know, to understand this whole point of uh, the pervasion of the uh, whole in its parts and how we, uh, you know, how much of the parts and for how long do we have to know any of these parts in order to know what something is, to know the whole. And uh, Svatantrika makes a distinction between what's called substantially existent composite forms and substantially existent group forms of physical phenomenon. So both in terms of physical phenomenon. So what is the difference here? A composite form literally is a piled up form are those in which there are consistent particle, consti constituent particles and or constituent parts connect with each other, like a head, arms, legs and trunks of our bodies, or the parts of a vase. They're all connected with each other, so it's a composite form. They constitute whole masses, is the term, and they have composite substantial existence. A grouped form are those in which their constituent parts do not connect with each other, like a forest made up of a group of trees or an army made up of a group of soldiers. They have group substantial existence. So what's the difference in terms of uh, how we know these and how we know any of the uh, parts together with uh, knowing this whole, the whole. Composite forms are self-sufficiently knowable. When we see just an arm that's connected to the whole body, we simultaneously see the arm and a body, even though we don't see the entire body. Right? Here, the individual defining characteristic mark of the whole body is found in each of its parts. Okay, so that's fairly straightforward. When you, know, you have a whole object and all the parts of it are connected with each other, then uh, we see them in that way. Grouped forms are imputedly knowable 
despite having substantially established existence. They have substantially established existence. Remember, they are. That's because they perform a function. But, and usually substantially established, well, no, but uh, uh, when we speak about forms of physical phenomenon as substantially established phenomenon, let's say in the Sautrantika system, they are substantially established, self-sufficiently knowable. Here, we have a form of physical phenomenon that's substantially established, but is imputedly knowable. So what does that mean? If we see a severed arm, or just a skin cell, although they both have the characteristic marks of a body, we could see them on their own, without the rest of the body being present. In that case, we could not say that we are seeing a body when we see just the severed arm or the skin cell. But if the rest of the body missing the arm were present, but not connected with it, then we would need first to see the severed arm or skin cell, and then to ascertain that it's a part of the whole body, the arm or cell, we'd have to see the arm or cell together with the rest of the, with a part of the rest of the body that constitutes a composite form. Then we would know that it is the arm from the, this body that is missing an arm. So, well, what would be an application of that? The car, the news on the cartels in Mexico. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is what it's sounding like. Dismembered. Oh, dismem well, you see one soldier, and you don't, you don't see the whole army. Yeah. You know, you find a, uh, you know, a prisoner of war. You're not seeing the whole army when you see this uh, particular soldier. When we see, and this is interesting, I mean, you think about this. I mean, can you find a practical example? Let's say you're with somebody and they tell you their name. Well, when we hear the name, I mean, we're also experiencing the, the, the person, the body of the person, the whole thing. It's connected. When you just read a name and a list of names without the person being present, you don't associate it with the person, do you? If they tell us our name, then we know, oh, it's your name of this, of this person. When we see it on a piece of paper, it's just a name. When that person isn't present, we haven't associated it with the person. Does that make sense? But often we see names and we associate. Pardon? But often we see names and then we have also a person. For example, you know a person with a name that it's not quite common. So you have this, if you read the name, you're probably also in your mind pops up or the person. Well, it could be an imaginary person if we've never met the person. We read the name Nagarjuna or Tsongkhapa. Do we know the person when we read that? No. On one of these dating apps, when you uh, come across uh, somebody's profile on that, or you read a profile on Facebook, do you know the person? No. No. It's a computer. Pardon? It's a computer. It's a computer. It's uh, what, uh, whatever information they put there. Yeah. I mean, if you actually are with the person and they tell you this information, they could be lying, of course. But nevertheless, with that information, you are seeing a person. Mm. So this is, uh, I think, relevant to realize that when we look at Facebook page profiles or a dating app or something like that. That's not the person. Well, but with this argument, 
you could also say you never really know someone. How much information do you need? Well, how much information do you know? I mean, this was what we were talking about last week. That's okay. That is uh, very little information. Yeah. How much do you need? How much do you need to be satisfied with saying that you know? There's a difference between knowing a person and knowing, being able to identify the person. Yeah. With just the name, you can't really identify the person. with the name and then seeing them in the class, for example, then you might be able to identify them. So, perhaps I shouldn't have used the word know the person, but to be able to identify the person is much better, much more precise from just seeing the, from just the Facebook uh, information and even the photo on a dating map you still might not be able to identify the person because they could have doctored that photo, photoshopped it. But you might if the information is accurate. If the information is accurate, still, you wouldn't be identifying the person. You would be just seeing the picture. To identify the person, as a person, you know, even when you're there, you would have to first look at the picture and then look at the picture and the per and the per the body of the person to be able to correctly identify it. So in that sense, it's imputedly knowable, right? Okay. Now, cognition of a person and a body. The colored shapes of a part of a body, an arm, for example, a body as a whole conventional common sense object, and a person all constitute a single substantial entity established simultaneously in a sensory cognition. Remember we were talking about that? What actually appears in the mental hologram of a sensory cognition all at once, simultaneously? So it would be Colored shapes of a body, it's the sight of, a, of uh, a part of the body, an arm. We're seeing a, a body as a whole object, even though we don't see all the parts of it. So we're actually seeing a body as a common sense object and a person. The imputation on that, all of them are appearing in the same, simultaneously in a mental hologram. So where are the defining characteristic marks of it? The colored shapes are the basis for the defining characteristic marks of the arm and the body, but not of the person. They do not have on their side the defining characteristic marks of the person. This is non-prasangika. A person is a sentient being, which literally means a possessor of a limited mind. So there's always a mind when there's a person, otherwise it's just a body. When you see a corpse, the arm of a corpse, or the front of a corpse, you're seeing a sight of a, of a part of a body, and you're seeing a body, but you're not, that's no longer a person. For it to be a person, there needs to be mind there. It's just a dead corpse, an object. So, according to the Sautrantika and the Svatantrikas, the individual defining characteristic mark of a person is not in the body, it's in the mental, on the side of the mental continuum, of the, of the mental consciousness, I should say, the continuum of the mental consciousness. And for the Chittamatras, it's on the side of the Aliya Vijnana, the foundation consciousness. So that's uh, where that is. So when we see a live person, and we see the body, I mean, we see an arm, and we see a body. I mean, when we see an arm, we're seeing a body, and we are seeing a person, because the mental consciousness is uh, present in the five aggregates of uh, what we are, of what appear. I mean, of what are, not appear, but what's the involved object of our cognition. 
the person is imputed on as an imputation on the five aggregates. So that's uh, how it's explained in the uh, non-prasangika systems in terms of these individual defining characteristic marks. You follow all of that? Pardon? Yes, you can go ahead. Okay, so now we come to Prasangika, finally. And the uh, Prasangika position is that, uh, well, the non-Prasangikas, the Satrantikas, Chittamatras, and Svatantrikas, said that all self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon are self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent phenomenon. They have substantially established existence, established by as existence established by the fact that they have the ability to perform a function. And among imputedly knowable phenomena, non-congruent affecting variables such as persons also have substantially established existence. Static phenomenon don't. Okay, so we're talking about these objects that substantially existent. Substantially existent means that they are, have substantially established existence. They're substantially established because they have on their side, first of all, a self-establishing nature. It's findable, and they, they, which gives them self-established existence, and they have an individual defining characteristic mark that also establishes their existence either by itself in the case of Chittamacho or in conjunction with mental labeling uh, in the case of Svatantrika. Um, okay, now, so that's substantially established. If it performs a function, it has this on its, these things on its side. Um, now, we won't get into the whole discussion about what Static phenomenon have on their side, but anyway, they are they have self-established existence, a self-establishing nature on their side. Everybody will agree with that in the non-prasangika schools. So, prasangika refutes self-established existence. It asserts that no phen the phenomenon, there are no phenomenon that are self-sufficiently. Knowable, self-sufficiently knowable means self. Self. God, I can't say it. it's too complicated. Uh, as self-sufficiently knowable, substantially, substantial existence. None of them have substantial existence. There's nothing substantial findable on the side of anything, of any object. So because self-established, self, self-sufficiently knowable is defined as self-sufficiently knowable, substantially existent. If you say there's no such thing as substantially existent, because nothing has self-established existence, then you can't assert that anything is self-sufficiently knowable. Again, it's an awful lot of technical terms, I'm sorry. So, but it does assert imputedly knowable phenomenon, and it calls coarse imputedly knowable phenomenon what the non-prasangika schools say call just imputedly knowable phenomenon. So they agree that persons, like which are non-associated, non-congruent affected variables, and static phenomenon, like uh, categories, that they are imputedly knowable, coarsely imputably knowable, in the sense that first you have to cognize the basis for uh, imputation, and then the basis together with the, uh, the imputation, the imputation of phenomenon, the person or the voidness of a, or the category of a person. But then it asserts that all validly knowable phenomena have subtle, imputedly knowable existence. 
That means actual cognition of them requires simultaneous actual cognition of their basis for imputation. In other words, everything is an imputation on a basis, on a basis of parts, on a basis of uh, um, causes and conditions. So everything is, a, you know, and in this sense, whether we talk about imputation of uh, persons, non-congruent affecting variables, and of static phenomenon like uh, categories, it's an imputation on a basis for the imputation. If we speak, uh, now let's try that again. If we speak of what the others, what I've been calling imputations, like non-associated affecting variables, objectively real phenomenon from their point of view, Satranskal point of view, that's an imputation on the basis of imputation. If we speak in terms of categories, that's mental labeling on a basis for labeling that's only known conceptually. Persons can be known, or time can be known non-conceptually. But uh, it's in this sense that uh, we have the same term in Tibetan and Sanskrit for mental labeling and imputation and designation with words as well, because all three of them are, if we use the more general word, imputation, imputations on a basis for imputation. So everything is knowable only in terms of simultaneously having a basis for imputation and the impute, imputational phenomenon. So this applies to the cognition of wholes and parts. A whole and its parts then are imputedly knowable in the subtle sense of the term. So we have coarse imputedly knowable phenomenon like uh, persons that you have to first know, cog you know, cognize the basis, you know, let's say a body or parts of the body and the body and then in the next moment the parts and the, and the body. I mean this is just in terms of one sense and the person. But then you have what are subtle impu impu uh, imputedly knowable phenomena, which like the body, which you have to have cognition of the parts and the body simultaneously. Okay? Now, what about the individual defining characteristic parts? Prasangika refutes existence established by individual defining characteristic marks, whether exclusively by the power, whether the, by the power exclusively of the defining characteristic marks, or the power of them in conjunction with what is mentally labeled with conceptual cognition. You know, it doesn't matter whether we assert existence established by individual defining characteristic marks, either in the Chittamatra sense or the Svatantrika sense. Prasangika says there's no such thing. You can't find anything on the side of the object. So you can't find whether you conventionally are on the deepest level. So you can't find the individual defining characteristic marks. Such, you know, uh, so whether it's established by, existence is established on the, from the side of the object by an individual defining characteristic mark or a self-established, uh, establishing uh, nature or an essential nature, no such thing. All right, there isn't anything findable on the side of the object. Prasangika asserts that all validly knowable phenomena, including holes, parts, and their individual defining characteristic marks, have existence established exclusively by being something imputed by conceptual cognition. So, Conceptual cognition, group of people come up with a category like love or, you know, a color or table or person or whatever. And they come up with the defined, you know, and that's, they have a, there's a category and there's a word for it. And even the definition of the word and the defining characteristic of the category is made up by convention. 
that a group of people agree on. So all of that is on the side of the mind, even though it's not findable on the side of the mind, but it's all being uh, established from the side of the mind. You know, the people that made up the convention and so on, not from the side of the object. And then all of that is, you know, an imputation on a basis, the basis it's even a validly knowable object is a category made up, you know, by, uh, you know, mental fabrication, sometimes it's called. But conventionally, there are such things because they function. And what are they? Well, the only, how do you establish, how do you prove that there are they, these things? The only thing you can say is that we have these conventions, we have these words, we have these categories, we've defined them in such and such a way, and they refer to something. And those are the conventionally existent phenomenon, referent objects of, uh, you know, either a label of a category or a designation of a word on the basis. And this is the case with uh, wholes and parts as well, and persons. Because of this, Prasangika refutes that wholes and their parts constitute a single substantial entity established simultaneously in a sensory cognition. Remember we said that uh, what is established in that mental hologram that arises when you see something and what is established there is a single substantial entity. So a, sing, a substantial entity is the same word as a natal source. So there, outside, you know, standing there, established from its own side, is the whole in its parts, and they're established as that object that appears in a cognition, and they're established simultaneously. So. Prasangya doesn't describe it that way because it doesn't accept that anything has, a, has substantial existence. There's no such thing as a substantial entity from the point of view of Prasangika. So they say that uh, the, uh, instead of saying, instead of describing the relation between a whole and its parts as the two constituting the same substantial entity but different conceptual isolates, that was how the non-Prasangika school said that the whole and its parts are one substantial entity, but they have different conceptual isolates. You can conceptually isolate the whole from its parts, even though in one cognition you're seeing both. It's the same natal source. Prasangika describes the whole and its parts as having the same essential nature, but different conceptual isolates but without asserting that the essential nature is findable on the side of the object. So, the self and any of its parts, or any parts of it, the self and any of its aggregates, or any parts of the aggregates, also share the same essential nature, but different conceptual isolates. So, what are the definitions here? I mean, there's a lot of jargon here, I hope that... Uh, you're getting the, uh, the general idea. You know, how, it's how we understand the relationship between the whole and the parts, the body, the parts of the body, the sight of the body, the body as a whole <coughs> common sense object, and a person. So they're not all established. There's one substantial entity out there that in a cognition are all established together and we can only conceptually isolate all of them from each other, but uh, rather they share the same essential nature, and we can conceptually isolate them. So what is a sense having two phenomenon, the definition, two phenomenon share the same essential nature if they are two facts about the same attribute or aspect of a phenomenon? They share the same essential nature if they are two facts 
about the same attribute or aspect of a phenomenon. Aspect is the same word as mental hologram. So the same aspect refers to what arises in the same mental hologram in valid cognition of the phenomenon. So the sight of an apple and the taste of an apple do not share the same essential nature. They don't arise in the same cognition. I mean, mind you, we had this whole discussion between the dispute between the Jaitsumba and the uh, pension assertions that uh, if we speak in terms of substantial entities, then Pension said that the taste and the sight are established, you know, in one cognition. It's just that we don't know it. You can't perceive it, but they are there in the hologram. And Jaitsumba said that they were separate, that uh, the sight and the smell of the uh, uh, body are not both in that uh, same substantial entity. I mean, they are from the side of the object both there, but they are not established in that cognition together. But here, when we speak from the Pasangika point of view, uh, it's saying that the sight of an apple and the taste of an apple don't share the same essential nature. They're not both in one, uh, one cognition. Furthermore, phenomenon sharing the same essential nature are inseparable from each other. If one occurs or is the case, so is the other. So the sight of an arm and the sight of a body occur in the same. They have the same essential nature. They occur in the same hologram, even though there's not no findable essential nature on the side of the object. And they can be conceptually isolated from each other. Same thing with the person and the body. And all these things, you don't have this issue of where is the defining characteristic mark found? You know, is it found on the side of the, you know, the body of the person? Is the person's defining characteristic mark on the side of the body? Is it on the side of the mental consciousness? Where is it? It's not found anywhere. It's just established by convention. So it makes it a little bit easier, not so concrete. So now the interesting question arises uh, in terms of the two truths. We're always talking about the two truths. You know, a Buddha is the only one that can perceive the uh, two truths, two essential natures of something simultaneously in one cognition. So what does that mean? For the non-Prasangika schools, the conventional nature and the deepest nature are both findable on the side of the object. For Prasangika, they're not found on the side of the object. You can't have the two essential natures. You know, I mean, they had. You know, the non-Pasangka schools were saying that, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't go too, you know, complicated into that because I'm not 100% uh, sure of that. But uh, they were saying that it's actually found on the side of the object, the two essential natures. They're both there. So a Buddha can see all of them, although conventional nature of an appearance of an impossible existence doesn't actually appear to uh, a Buddha's mind, but they would know that other people can conceive of it that way. I mean, there's all sorts of roundabout ways of uh, explaining it. Prasangika is saying very clearly that uh, the two essential natures, you know, this is, uh, Tsongkhaba makes this point in Lama Chemo. There are two essential natures, conventional nature and the deepest nature of uh, two phenomenon. They cannot appear in the same cognition because uh, in uh, the conventional nature, the superficial truth about something is that it appears 
to be to have self-established existence and voidness the deepest truth is that there's no such thing it's a total absence of truly of self-established existence so they can't appear in the same hologram so you can't say that on that level of you know conventional truth and the deepest truth that they share the same essential nature that a buddha could see them as having the same essential nature but having two you know different conceptual isolates so the only way around that is that a buddha you know what does it mean for a buddha to perceive the two truths simultaneously you know, it's having the same essential nature but different conceptual isolates is that a Buddha focuses only on voidness and the voidness that a Buddha you know focuses on which is manifest and it is um, what's the word explicit so it appears is that uh, so it's only focusing on voidness now that voidness has two conceptual isolates it's the voidness of superficial truth or conventional truth and the voidness of deepest truth is able to focus the Buddha is able to focus on that on that voidness having that voidness be explicit and manifest in one cognition Ordinary beings can't. An Arya can't do that. For an Arya, in total absorption on voidness, only voidness appears and is explicitly apprehended. It's manifest. In the subsequent attainment, conventional truth appears again. So an appearance of self-established existence. And an Arya can only implicitly apprehend non-conceptually mind you but implicitly apprehend the voidness of that appearance that's why it's called it's like an illusion it cannot you know apprehend in a manifest explicit way that voidness of that superficial phenomenon at the same time as perceiving the superficial phenomenon. So then they say, well, what does the uh, Buddha perceive? You know, does the Buddha perceive phenomenon? Buddha's omniscient. They say, well, that Buddha perceives what is known as merely conventions, not conventional truths. Conventional truth is what appears to be true to an ordinary limited mind or to a limited mind, you know, even, you know, if we speak in terms of an Arya. So we make the distinction, and this is a distinction in our Lamrim Chemo, between a conventionality and a conventional truth. Conventionally true phenomenon. All conventionally true phenomenon are deceptive because they appear to be truly existent, whereas they're not. Nevertheless, Buddha perceives conventionalities, mere conventionalities, it's known as. So that's what a Buddha is able to perceive. But in terms of perceiving the two truths simultaneously, a Buddha is perceiving the voidness of the two simultaneously, and explicitly that voidness is appearing in a Buddhist cognition with these two conceptual isolates it can be conceptually isolated as being the voidness of conventional truth and the voidness of deepest uh, truth so that is uh, the way that uh, a Buddha perceives things so according to Prasangika nothing has existence established by the power and essential nature findable on the uh, side of an object and it's not that there's some findable 
substantially established entity that has findable on its own side the separate defining characteristic marks that establish the existence of it as a part and as a whole, or as a mental consciousness as a person. Nevertheless, the ex- all the rest of the explanation that we find in the uh, lower tenet systems are accepted by the uh, prasangikas. So that is the basic presentation of the prasangika position and the position of the lower tenet systems, non-prasangika systems, in terms of the relationship between a whole and its parts and how we actually perceive a person. You know, this was uh, what our whole this whole series of uh, discussions has been about. It's been about uh, persons and how we perceive a person and what is a person. And we've seen that a person is an imputation on an individual continuum of five aggregates as its parts. We've uh, seen a very complex analysis of uh, the different assertions that uh, the different dentist systems have. We've seen that they are stepping stones for uh, going deeper and deeper into the understanding of uh, the relation between a person and uh, its parts. And uh, we've seen the practical application of it. And uh, we got into this whole uh, discussion because uh, in uh, Tsongkhapa's presentation of, of uh, the Vipassana section, section on voidness or emptiness in Lamrim Chemo, he was uh, making a big point that uh, we have to neither over-refute nor under-refute the object of uh, refutation. So if we understand that a person is you know, you can only establish the existence of a person exclusively in terms of what the mental label or category or word for a person refers to. You know, and that there is no individual defining characteristic mark, there's no essential nature, there's no self-establishing nature on the side of the object, findable on the side of the object, but exclusively, you know, we can only establish that understanding, I mean, the, the existence of this in terms of mental labeling, then this helps us to not over-refute or under-refute. Over-refuting would be to say that there's conventionally no defining individual defining characteristic mark of an object. If that were the case, you couldn't distinguish anything from anything else. So conventionally, there is a definable characteristic mark. There is a conventional essential nature of what it is. You can only establish that there is such a thing in terms of the concepts and words for these, but nevertheless, conventionally, there is. Otherwise, you know, nothing would have a, an identity. It's not a self-established identity, but nothing would have an identity. And then cause and effect, the relationship between things wouldn't work. Dependent arising wouldn't work. You couldn't differentiate, you know, what is being imputed and the basis for imputation would be the same. So that doesn't make any sense. So that's the over-refutation. The under-refutation is to say that there's still something findable on the side of the object. That's the under-refutation. And the point that Tsongkhapa was uh, really making very strongly was in refuting the position uh, many people at his time had which was um, basically the false aspectarian. I mean, it follows from the false aspectarian point of view that uh, the um, 
imputations in terms of uh, non-congruent affecting variables like persons that these only occur, only can be known conceptually and because conceptual cognition is deceptive because it also produces an appearance of self-established existence of true existence then they over-refute by saying that well there is no such thing as the you know conventionally existent person it's only a mental construct mental construct you know in terms of well making a whole object and making a person that these are only a conceptual synthesis remember this was the big difference between the true aspectarian and the false aspectarian a whole is a synthesis of its parts it is a synthesis of the sight and the sound and the smell and the scent and the taste and the physical sensation and endures over time and so on there are conventional objects common sense objects and you see them non-conceptually but the false aspectarian was saying that no you don't see these non-conceptually these are mental constructs these are only known conceptually and if they're only known conceptually and conceptual cognition comes with it an appearance of truly established existence that you know something truly fits into the mental box of the category then in refuting that you know the validity of conceptual cognition they, they refute the validity of conventional objects and Tsongkhapa says this is an over-refutation you're refuting too much So this is, you know, the big point that uh, he's making, that we need to accept that there are such things as common sense objects. And these are mere conventionalities. And when you speak about conceptual, you know, so you have to differentiate mere conceptuality, mere conventionalities, I'm sorry, I didn't say that correctly mere conventionalities from conventional truths and it's not that the object is substantially established out there self-established and a limited mind perceives it in one way so it perceives it as conventional truth and a Buddha perceives it in another way You know, doesn't perceive it that way. Buddha only sees the deepest truth. You know, so it's not that there's, you know, the object is there and it's two different minds perceive it in two different ways. That also Tsongkhapa refutes. It can only be that way if the object is substantially self-established out there and two different minds are looking at it. So, Tsongkhapa and the Galupa tradition get around that by this uh, assertion that uh, the way the Buddha sees the two truths simultaneously is seeing the voidness of the two truths explicitly simultaneously. That's the way that it is. So, hopefully, this uh, will help us to uh, understand the uh, much more complex presentation that uh, Tsongkhapa makes of voidness and the prasangika position in Lamrim Chemo. So do you have any final questions or points? No. Good. Very, very good. So, let's end with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, 
may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.